Hey, y'all, it's Rima. So before we start, just a heads up that this is the second episode in a two-part story. So if you didn't hear last week's episode titled Finding Michael Part 1, you should definitely do that first. In that last show, we introduced you to a woman named Stephanie and her search for her brother. It's, it's been the center forever of like not knowing where he is and worrying about him for so long. It's like, I have to, I have to do something. As a kid, Stephanie looked up to Michael. He was the cool older brother who could play Nirvana songs on his guitar and whiz through video game levels in a way that would honestly impress any eight-year-old kid. But he also took care of Stephanie. Their mom was a heavy drinker, and Michael was always protective of his younger sister, always trying to shield her from the darker parts of their childhood, like when they'd find their mom passed out in the living room. But as a teenager, Michael grew angsty and defiant. He'd stay out late. He started drinking. Sometimes he'd just flat out disappear, and they'd have to go out looking for him. And I remember being, I mean, I must have been like seven or eight years old in footy pajamas, fresh out of the shower, and in my dad's truck, and we're like, having a spotlight, and we're riding around in Baltimore looking for him. This act of searching for her older brother, it's been a defining feature of Stephanie's entire life. When their parents got divorced, Michael stayed with their mom, and Stephanie moved states away with their dad. And after that, Michael's life only continued its downward spiral. He ultimately dropped out of high school and struggled with substance abuse. And as an adult, he'd hop from city to city. You know, it's been my whole life of like, where is he? Okay, we found him. Okay, he, oh, he called us. Let's try to return the call. You know, we kept our landline because we knew he knew that phone number. When she was in college, Stephanie finally figured out where he was living. But before she could go track him down in person, she found out he died from a liver disease. This was in 2009 during the recession, and Stephanie's dad had just lost his job. He was in debt, falling behind on mortgage payments. There was no way they could afford to fly out to Texas or even pay for Michael's funeral. So Michael went unclaimed, which means the county where he died stepped in to take care of his burial. At the time, Stephanie's family didn't get many details about his death or where he was even buried. So Stephanie tried to find him. First, she threw her energy into finding his death certificate, but despite multiple attempts, Texas seems to have no record of it. She even went to the cemetery where she thinks he's buried, but couldn't find any marker, any sign that he's there. It was like I went into overdrive. I, ca- I actually started saying, like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? What she wants is to find his body, cremate him, and bring him back home. Which it just seems really extreme, but I feel like if I leave him out there, then, like, he... Is like still no one's fighting for him. But 13 years later, Stephanie still has no idea where his body was laid to rest. And she no longer felt like she had the capacity to continue the search. So we offered to help to see if we could find any answers for her. She said yes, but... I, I mean, I truly have zero expectation. I, I don't expect some, you know, gigantic miracle with a huge file and, like, all this crazy stuff. All the answers in one place. That's that's not realistic at all, especially because, you know, it's it's been a while. Last December, I teamed up with our producer, Marissa Cabrera, to see if we could find answers for Stephanie. We did uncover some things, which we'll get to later in the show. But first, before getting back to Michael's story, 
we're going to take a little detour. I wanted to learn more about the unclaimed, this obscure topic that I'd never thought of before. Like what typically happens when someone like Michael dies and they or their family don't have any money to pay for a burial? Like how common is this and how do we as a country handle the unclaimed? The more we poked around, the more we realized there actually isn't a lot of research out there about this topic. It's difficult to put together numbers about the unclaimed. Pamela Perkett is a sociologist who's writing a book about how communities care for their unclaimed. I wish I had more specifics for you, but even getting within one city, consistent numbers around this is exceptionally difficult. Her best estimate is that roughly tens of thousands of people go unclaimed each year. And as you can imagine, money is a big reason for that. In this country, the median cost of a funeral is $7,800. In a place like Los Angeles, it very easily goes up to ten or 11000 That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, and cremation is cheaper, but it's not that much cheaper. Either way, point is, funerals are expensive. So expensive that during recessions, we actually see a greater number of unclaimed deaths. And when relatives either can't or won't pay, the financial responsibility falls to local governments. Well, there's no federal laws around disposition. This is really a state-by-state or county level, the way that we handle death in the United States. Because there's no uniform system, it's up to counties how they want to handle the unclaimed. And to be honest, I was surprised by some of their approaches. In Orange County, California, they cremate the unclaimed dead, which tends to be a cheaper option, and scatter their ashes at sea. New York City buries the unclaimed in mass graves on an island about a mile off the coast of the Bronx called Heart Island. In Los Angeles, they bury their ashes in a mass grave and hold an annual interfaith ceremony honoring their lives, something they've been doing since 1896. Then there's West Virginia, which has no clear rules for what the state medical examiner should do with unclaimed bodies. So they keep them in freezers. They've got so many, some of which date back to the late 70s, that they're running out of space. A big problem counties face is that they just don't have the money for proper burials, which is why sometimes they have to resort to pretty strange solutions. Like, take this guy, for example. So my name is Jake Futch. And I am the Bullock County Coroner in Statesboro, Georgia. Jake's been the county coroner for 20 years now, and he sees his work as so much more than bureaucracy, which is a sentiment we ran into a lot as we talked with people who work directly with the unclaimed. To me, it's a ministry. It's part of me being a, a, a minister and a minister to families during the worst time of life. And the loss of a loved one is never easy. And so if I'm able to help families through that time, then I'm doing, I feel like, what I'm supposed to do. So you're pretty much notified of almost every death that happens in the county. Mm -hmm. And what percentage of those deaths go unclaimed? Well, fortunately, we don't have that many, even though I know that you all may have seen that article that came out a couple years back about how many that I have in my office closet. And so... Wait, wait. So you have cremains in your office closet right now? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that are unclaimed, yeah. Yeah, so in case you missed that, Jake has a closet in his office filled with people's ashes. Picture an average coat closet with about 50 white cardboard boxes 
of cremated remains stacked on a shelf, just sitting there because there's nowhere else to put them. But he wants to give them a final, more formal resting place. I think they need to be like a mass burial in a mausoleum crypt, just to put them there. And then once a year, go and open it up and put more in there. But he's not sure the county will fund this. And if they won't? We just hang on to them until the end of time, I guess. People who study the unclaimed told us that the system is such a complicated patchwork that it can almost feel secretive at times. Here's Pamela again. The, the unclaimed tend to be hidden, a kind of secret dead of society. Um, and it's who goes unclaimed that often contributes to the secrecy. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of homeless persons um, who end up unclaimed, right? Often the unclaimed might have also... Um, as like in the case of Stephanie's brother, right, had drug addiction. Um, In Hart Island, Mm -hmm. this is where AIDS victims who went unclaimed were buried. You know, we we think of the the unclaimed as a canary in the coal mine for thinking about larger social inequities and the most kind of isolated, socially isolated populations in the country. And Pamela told me that as a country, we're only seeing more social isolation— meaning more and more Americans are likely going to face dying alone, especially men who tend to be less connected to friends and family over time. This means more people will likely go unclaimed. And that is a looming problem. And so I think it's a, it's a fair subject that the country should be having. Like, what, what do we do with un, the unclaimed? And how do we want to, to treat their bodies and to treat their services? The reality is that making sure people die with dignity and care, it takes time and money. And right now, researchers tell us it doesn't seem like it's a priority. Maybe it's because, as one of them put it, people who are dead can't vote. They can't complain. Now that we had a better sense of how the unclaimed are handled in this country— We wanted to go back to Michael's case, specifically to Travis County, Texas, where he died back in 2009. We cast a wide net trying to find out any information about Michael, like literally just anything. So our producer, Marissa, hit the phones. At the tone, please record your message. I'm calling with the podcast. This is uncomfortable. Wait while I transfer your call. I'll transfer you to the burial program. Thank you. She kept getting bounced around. And then one Friday afternoon, I got a Slack message from Marissa telling me she had a big update. So we got on the phone the next day. Can you hear me? Yes. Marissa told me that she seemed to have gotten in touch with the right department, which might have been hard to find because it is not the first place you'd think to call if you were looking for your unclaimed brother. It's the Travis County Road and Bridge Department. And I know that sounds really strange. (laughs) Like, when they first told me, like, you have to call the Road and Bridge Department. I'm like, what? Like, why are they keeping burial records? So she told me that she got connected to this department and talked to a really kind woman named Sherry. Sherry asked Marissa to send her an email with Michael's details and said she'd search her database and call her if she found anything. Marissa hung up, sent Sherry the email, and then just went about her day, thinking it would be like every other dead end she'd hit so far. But then Marissa got an email back from Sherry. So she found the records? Yeah, she attached them. It's this PDF 
and I open it and it's what we've been looking for. Marissa forwarded it to me. It's this four-page PDF about Michael's burial, including the details Stephanie wants to know more than anything, the exact location of his gravesite. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. No. We called Sherry back just to double-confirm everything before giving Stephanie the news. At first, Sherry told us she didn't think she'd be able to find anything, But when she finally did, she realized that she actually handled Michael's burial. Yeah. So when I pulled it up, I was like, oh, my God, I took this name. So when I found it, um, you know, I mean, I was like, yeah, I remember this burial. I told Sherry that the cemetery in the PDF she sent us, it's the same cemetery Stephanie visited last year. But she couldn't find his gravesite. I wish she would have called me. I would have helped her out. She told us it's not unusual for her to get these kind of phone calls. She's worked for the county for 19 years, and this is one facet of her job, dealing with burials. And kind of like my call with Jake, the coroner in Georgia, she treats her work as more than just a paycheck. I'll try everything, even if I have to, you know, call for some people to go and, and find out some stuff about their, their loved mm-hmm. ones. Why, why do you think that you get so invested it's maybe my calling. I don't know. I just want to I just want to help people and let them have an ease. Yeah. Dealing with such a heavy topic like death. I wonder if it like sort of changes your perspective on life at all. Dealing with burials every day. It's just like, oh, my God, like. You can't take life for granted. You know, you have to appreciate life because it could be gone in the blink of an eye. And then yeah. looking at these people's situations, you know, homeless, you know, I my heart goes out to them. I pray yeah. a lot to not get caught up in all that and just oh, stay positive. I like talking with Sherry. It reminded me that bureaucratic spaces can be confusing and seemingly inaccessible, but they're still run by humans. And sometimes those humans really do get the emotional stakes behind the very day-to-day clinical parts of their job. And in a way, I don't know, that made me feel less cynical. Sherry also explained why the road and bridge department handles cemetery records. It's because they're the ones that manage the upkeep of cemeteries and dig the graves for burials, so they also keep the records. Travis County, though, does have a separate, dedicated program just for indigent burials. But when we contacted them to try to understand their process and figure out why it's been so hard to pin down Michael's information, officials declined multiple interview requests and wouldn't explain why. Here's what we were able to figure out ourselves, though, through research. The county's indigent burial program has been around for at least 15 years. When a person dies and the county can't find their relatives or if those relatives can't afford a burial, the county pays a local funeral home $1,000 to take care of their arrangements. And it appears that the number of indigent burials has been on the rise in Travis County, mostly because of population growth, but also because of the pandemic. So, many phone calls, documents, and bureaucracies later, we finally had some of the answers Stephanie has been searching for all these years. 
So we hop back on the phone with her. Um, wow, it's so nice to um, <laughs> chat with you again. It's yeah, been so it's, long. It's been um, in a way, it all felt a bit as, as anticlimactic. The, I mean, here we were at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday on a Zoom call. She was in her office space in between work meetings. And I was about to reveal something she'd been wanting to know for years that might give her some semblance of peace. I explained how we found our way to Sherry at the Road and Bridge Department and how Sherry gave us the documents she'd been searching for about Michael's grave. So I'm going to forward them to you right now. Okay. So Stephanie. We sat there in silence for a bit as she waited for the email to come through. Is there more than... Okay, it's four pages? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I know this might be a lot to look at right now. Just just trying to be able to see... (laughs) The top of the document reads Burial Confirmation Information. And then it lists Michael's name, his birth date, the day he passed. And then there's some info about his burial. It says he was buried in a regular size casket. It also states, no one attending burial at cemetery. Oh, man, no one attending. Right in the heart. And then she got to the last page. Oh, they do have his lot there. Yeah, so there, there's a picture of, of where he is. Where okay. his body is in the lot. Is that in the same place I probably... Yeah, it was. Oh, I knew it. Lot 51. Okay. Yeah, this is pretty surreal. Also, the road and bridge department. <laughs> no wonder I couldn't find I know. anything. I know. It makes you think I'm looking for, like, a troll or the Grim Reaper right. himself. He's, like, hiding under something. The documents also list which hospital treated him and even the physician's name. Oh, my gosh. You guys. This is so big. <laughs> this, this is so huge. Stephanie started talking about one of the last times a family member had seen Michael alive. He was in the hospital, and he felt alone. He said that he didn't think anyone loved him anymore. Oh, my God. Which is so, so untrue. It's heartbreaking. Because you imagine thinking your family didn't love you anymore because you're in a hospital, mm. and your mom's a addict somewhere. And <laughs> I mm. mean, I'm laughing because you just it's so, it's right. so fucked up. Like, it is. Also, I can't believe how thankfully simple it was for you to get this. Now with these documents finally in hand, Stephanie started talking about what she might be able to do next. Um, well, I think with with this gigantic <laughs> uh, bar of gold, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> um, with this, I ideally will be able to at least get either a marker there or, or some mm-hmm. other more drastic thing. I can make some... Um, some bigger decisions. I uh, probably have some flights to book. (laughs) (laughs) Before all of this, Stephanie was planning to make another trip to Austin. And now with this new information, she was even more eager to make it out there. 
She told me I could join her, so I also booked a flight, and we made a plan to at long last visit Michael's grave. That's after the break. A couple months after sharing those documents with Stephanie, we both flew into Austin, and on a warm Thursday morning, after a year of Zoom calls, we finally met in person, along with her boyfriend, Scott. Hi! Oh my god! Oh, it's so good to meet you. Yeah, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hey, I'm Rima. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We're here. Yeah. yeah. We met outside their Airbnb. Stephanie has long brown hair. She was wearing light jeans, her favorite brown boots, and a pale green oversized Nirvana shirt. Yeah. I just noticed you're wearing a Nirvana shirt. This is his. Oh, it's his shirt? Yeah. This is the one I told you about. Yeah. It was Michael's shirt from when he was a teenager. Nirvana was one of his favorite bands. He was always playing their songs. We got into their car to head to the cemetery. Stephanie told me she had trouble falling asleep the night before. She was up late trying to distract herself with Sudoku puzzles. This is it. After a few minutes, we turned a corner, and right in front of us was the Travis County International Cemetery. So as you can see, it's pretty large. Yeah. It kind of keeps going, and it goes pretty far back there. Oh, yeah, it is bigger than I imagined. And it goes all the way around on the side, too. We parked on a paved pathway in the middle of the cemetery. The place looked slightly neglected, a lot of dead grass punctuated with big green trees. It's pretty quiet beyond the occasional trucks and cars that whiz by. And it became clear to me right away why she had a hard time finding his grave the last time she was here. They're just sort of scattered, the gravesites. Yeah, if you look, it's, you know, not what you usually see, right? You usually see a a very row and everything is kind of um, orderly. Yeah, it's just like there's no system. where Where do you start? As we talked, a black car approached us. We'd arranged for Sherry to meet us here. She drove 40 miles and took time off of work to meet Stephanie and help us find the exact plot. Can I hug you? Oh, Thank yes, you. I'm a hugger. Oh. The four of us started walking towards the left side of the cemetery, with Sherry leading the way. And Stephanie pointed out all the spots she searched the last time they were here. Um, so, yeah, we started here, and then we just kind of went all this way, oh, and then we actually... So far away. Yeah, no, we, I have a feeling. feeling it's over yep. here. Yeah. yeah. It's like right in between that yellow and red flower. We got closer to this small cluster of grave sites. And then Sherry pointed at his plot. As a surprise, Sherry had put orange and white flowers and a marker at Michael's grave site. So there he is, right there. Almost immediately, when Stephanie looked at it, she lowered her head and quickly walked away. She stood still with her back towards us. Her boyfriend joined her and put his arm around her. Sherry and I gave her some space. After about a minute, Stephanie walked back towards us, and she took a closer look at the marker. Michael's resting place is tightly sandwiched between two other plots with actual headstones. The last time she was here, she'd been circling around this exact area, shouting Michael's name. We were right here. We were. Uh-huh. That's, I can't help but laugh a little bit. Like, right? Like, 
Sometimes I feel like he's playing jokes on me. <laughs> he would. Yeah, of course he would. Yeah. He's probably like laughing like, okay, it was it's about time. I'm really <laughs> Eventually Stephanie and I stepped aside to chat. We sat down in front of Michael's grave on the unkempt grass, picking at the blades as we talked. I have spent so well, it's actually, I didn't think about this. I've spent so much of my life not near him. This is the first time I've been near him since 97, mm. which is wow. really, really crazy. <laughs> How does it feel to know that he's definitively here? I feel really relieved and, like, happy, actually, which part of my brain is like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I was expecting to be very upset. We talked about why it's important for us, as humans, to know the details of someone's final days and where someone we love is physically located once they're gone. Because from a practical perspective, it doesn't change anything. But it made me think of the rituals we have around death, of gathering with family and friends, of remembering them, of sometimes even seeing the body itself, and how so much of that can help in processing the death. When that doesn't happen, there's actually a phrase for it. It's called ambiguous loss. Without knowing where the body is or without any clear answers around the death, it can make the grieving process infinitely harder. Stephanie said that's why she's been searching for his grave for so long, to have something, anything concrete. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make it seem like I needed a parade or something crazy, but... Sometimes I'm just like, am I, am I the only only one that's remembering him, or you know, or is it me and like three other people? And even with my family, sometimes I think they just completely forgot I had a brother. What do you wish you could say to him right now? Well, sometimes I want to yell at him, <laughs> like I can't believe you left me here, <laughs> you punk, you know. But then also just tell him, you know, like. Whatever has happened to you, it was terrible, but, you know, you can come back from this. You are loved. Like, if we just had the money to, like, get him help, right? Like, my dad, single dad, two kids, living in a not-super-cheap place. A lot of that just ties so much into, especially with addiction, like, learning more about my mother's life and, and her childhood, which was unbelievably terrible. I'm like, no wonder. No wonder this happened. Listening to her, I just kept thinking about this vicious cycle she's referring to. Of generational trauma, but also just how easily inequities multiply. How they can keep compounding over a lifetime. For Michael, growing up in a financially and emotionally unstable household... Addiction turned to homelessness, and even after death, his family couldn't afford a proper goodbye. It's like the ball of inequity started rolling so long ago, even before he was born, and it just never quite stopped. Sitting in front of his gravesite, Stephanie started wondering what she'll do next. Ideally, she'd like to exhume him and cremate his body. From Googling around, she knows that could cost at least a few thousand dollars. Which is actually why she and her boyfriend have been putting off some important decisions in order to save up money for Michael's cremation. 
we want to get engaged, we want to get married, we want to move, we want to do these things. And especially with, with the progress, we both agreed we were going to wait until he was home. We sat there talking for a bit until we noticed the ants crawling dangerously close to us. As we stood up, Stephanie said she was already feeling different. Yeah, I mean, I like right now I feel feel good. And it's 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 not a, f- a feeling I was expecting. Like I feel like I'm in more c- well, control. I wish I could like bottle this feeling. Stephanie knows that grief can take many forms. Like uncontrollable waves, they hit her with different intensities, bringing out all sorts of emotions. Sometimes it's anger, other times sadness or deep regret. But now she was feeling something she'd never quite felt before. There was an ease to her voice. As we drove around Austin, we played some of Michael's favorite Nirvana songs. And Stephanie, she mentioned and pointed at the things that reminded her of her brother, like the Doc Martens store or an electric guitar shop. And as she did that, I noticed the tattoo on her wrist. M for Michael. To Stephanie, Michael's everywhere. She's made sure of that. She's adamant about keeping his memory alive. You could say it's another form of grief. You can also say... It's love. That is all for our show this week. If you have any thoughts or comments or want to share your own story, you can always reach me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, do not forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter if you haven't already. Each Friday, I am in your inbox with a note about my own life or how I'm making sense of the news. Our team also shares really great recommendations on things to watch and read and listen to. You can subscribe to that by going to marketplace.org slash comfort. This episode was lead produced by Marissa Cabrera. It was hosted by me, Rima Hreis. Our producers are Camila Kerwin and Phoebe Unterman with help this season from Marielle Seguera. Haley Hirschman is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin with help this week from Caitlin Esch. Marque Green is our digital producer with help from Tony Wagner. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand, and our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Megan Dietry and Serena Chow. Also thanks to Hiju San with Emory University, Sarah Krebs with the nonprofit Missing in Michigan, and the officials at Maricopa County's Indigent Burial Program. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>